0: and turn with me to the book of Jude. Book of Jude is where we'll begin. <clears throat> Good to see all of you this morning. It felt like a morning to sit on the stool. So I'm on the stool. Uh, these, I, I think the main reason is that the uh, questions you guys, you guys ask hard questions. We're doing Q&A this morning and these are hard and so I guess maybe it's a, I'll be a good target for your tomatoes or whatever uh, when uh, I say something you don't want to hear about some of these questions that, that could possibly happen. I, I appreciate you being here this morning. Good to see we have visitors with us. Uh, I want you to know what we're doing uh, in this hour is I'm answering questions that have been submitted to me in writing or an email on some other way. And uh, I've had some time to prepare my response, and so these are... Uh, some of those questions. So it's not a dialogue where we're going to go back and forth and, and uh, that kind of thing, but it's instead a time where uh, we're going to study through some basic principles. Most of the things that happen when we have question and answer sessions uh, are extensions of some teaching in the Bible. So it's always good to go back and review some things uh, that help us answer questions that you guys are asking. Uh, so that's the, uh, the basic thrust of what we're doing. I do want to encourage you uh, to ask more questions, it's been a little while since I've gotten some, so I'm not quite running out. I think we probably got enough for four or five months still, but um, I don't want the well to run dry, and then all of us have to try to make up questions or something like that, because uh, that that probably wouldn't go too well. So, uh, all right. So the first question comes from Jude verse six. Uh, in Jude verse six, the text says. And the angels who did not stay within their position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So I, I just wanted to read that verse in introduction to answering this question. Oh, that's the end of the slideshow. That's not good. Okay. All right. Well, then I'll just tell you the question. The question is, where did Satan come from? Okay, The origin of Satan, that's what we're going to be talking about for this first part. Uh, Now, just to say it plainly, we're not specifically told the origin of Satan, so the way I'm going to go through this is I'm going to go through some of the passages that hint at that, and then I'm going to tell you what I think at the end. So you have Satan from the very beginning when you're in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, he's there in the form of the serpent. He is also present when the sons of God come to present themselves uh, before God in the book of Job. So if I had the PowerPoint, I would... Click over, and it would be Job chapter 1 and verse 6. Job 1 and verse 6 says, There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So the sons of God is probably a reference to angels. And I don't believe that Satan snuck in among the angels. I think this has something to do with he was there as a son of God, as an angel. But an angel who has turned in the wrong direction. And so you see, look at Jude 6 that we just read. In Jude 6 it says... The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So there are some angels who, for whatever reason, did not stay in the position they were given, but instead they sinned, they left their proper dwelling, and now they're going to be judged. Turn the page back a couple pages to 2 Peter, chapter 2. 2, Peter 2, which is a very similar uh, statement to what we just read in Jude, 2 Peter 2. And verse 4, 2 Peter 2, 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Okay, so that's a statement that says angels have sinned. They are cast into hell, or that word hell is Tartarus, a waiting place for judgment. They are committed to judgment. But you have something going on here, right, with angels who should be acting in a certain way, but instead they choose to do something different. Now, that has some questions for me. I have questions about how do angels sin and what does that look like? Does someone tempt them to sin? How did that all work? We just don't have any information about that. But we do have the idea that angels sin. So turn the page to Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation 12. So because of those things, it seems to me that very often Satan is tied to the idea of a descent or being thrown down a fall. So you see this in Revelation 12 and verse 7. Revelation 12 and verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So the idea of Satan being thrown down from heaven... And you start putting all of these passages together and you begin to get kind of a general picture of what must have happened. Uh, Satan, initially one of the sons of God, then somehow rebelled or sinned and now he's thrown down. Uh, Jesus also says, Luke chapter 10 and verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So the idea of it a fall, that's not just, you know, I slipped and fell, but I've been cast down. I've been removed from a certain place, uh, becomes the descriptor of Satan. There are a couple of passages that show a similar fall in the prophets. You have one in the book of Ezekiel uh, that's talking about the king of Tyre. You have one in the book of Isaiah that's talking about the king of Babylon. And they are prophecies that say, You're up so high and you're going to fall. Okay? I always think about um, college football okay? and the, the teams that are so great. And everybody says, I remember a few years ago, it was. Is USC the best team ever, and then USC can't even win the national championship that year, so they fall, okay? They come down, and they come crashing down, okay? So anytime something falls, you kind of have that picture in the back of your mind. Well, it's a lot like Satan, who was up so high, and he was cast down. So after his fall, Satan does have some authority or power. He is the prince of the world or the prince of the power of the air. He's called in a couple of places in the New Testament— but, and this is the important point, if you don't learn anything else about Satan, learn this, Satan's power is decisively defeated by the resurrection of Jesus, decisively, it is over, and now we're just sort of playing out the rest of the time until that is uh, finally sort of consummated or finished. So uh, I'll give you a few passages, we're not going to turn to them, if I had my board I'd put them on a the board. John 12 and verse 31, Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. 1 John 3 and verse 8, the reason the Son of God has appeared is to destroy the works of the devil. And Hebrews 2 14 and 15, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. So, you get the idea. Jesus defeats Satan through his resurrection. So, what is the origin of Satan? This is, I told you I was going to give you the evidence, and I'm going to tell you what I think. Here's what I think. I think that Satan is a created being, which means Satan would be created by God, created all things. Uh, my understanding, this is Jacob speaking, giving you my opinion and answer to this question, is that when God created the universe and created human beings, he wanted to create man with the moral ability to choose right and wrong, to choose good and evil, to choose to love him or to choose to hate him, choose to accept him or choose to reject him. So I'm not sure how that's true of angelic beings. I don't know. That's a realm that I've never experienced. But they had to have the ability to sin because it says in Second Peter 2, angels sinned. So Satan didn't keep his proper domain and he suffered as a result. And So now he offers others the opportunity to rebel against God and encourages them in that. And in fact, he seems to rule over them. So that's the origin of Satan. That's the best I can do. All right. Uh, Question two is what should a Christian consider regarding tattoos? We're going to talk about tattoos for a minute. You ready? All right. Leviticus chapter 19. Let's look in Leviticus 19. Is it wrong to tattoo ourselves? There is a prohibition in the Bible against tattoos. It's here in Leviticus 19. That's not what I'm looking for either. (laughs) All right, Leviticus 19 and uh, verse 26. Leviticus 19 and verse 26. You shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it, You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. So don't cut your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. Now this seems to have something to do with the ancient mourning rites of the Canaanite tribes. So mourning meaning when somebody dies... And they would tattoo themselves and they have these different, uh, like verse 28, making cuts on the body. Uh, And scholars are uh, divided as to what exactly that would mean. Sometimes they think that, you know, they would have marks on their body and it would ward off the departed spirits and that kind of thing. Uh, But the point here is God is saying, don't be like them. Don't cut yourselves and tattoo yourselves the way they do uh, for the dead. So... There is a connection here between uh, the tattooing, the marking of the body, and holiness. And even though tattoos are not mentioned again specifically, there is this connection with, for example, don't round off the hair, don't cut the edges of the beard, don't cut your body, don't make bald patches. And that's repeated in a couple of places. Under the law of Moses, there was expected to be no disfiguring of the body. That's something that the Canaanite tribes did. You remember in... uh, The scene where Elijah and the prophets of Baal are on Mount Carmel, and you remember they start cutting themselves, gashing themselves, and the blood poured out as they're trying to appeal to Baal. That was something they did, but God doesn't want his people to do that. Don't cut yourselves. Uh, The only kind of disfiguring of the body that God approves of in the Old Testament is circumcision circumcision as a sign of the covenant, but none of the things that the other Canaanites are doing. Uh, So, I think sometimes we miss this, but there are actually some indications that maybe even the practice of phylacteries was uh, originally the idea of tattooing. So phylacteries, you know, are the little boxes that Jews would put either here on their forehead. Sometimes you still see them with certain orthodox groups, or they would put them on different parts of their arms. And the reason for that is God says, this is uh, Exodus thirteen sixteen. it shall be a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Okay, and So we, we read that, and I think we just kind of read over it as sort of figurative language, but it's very easy to say, no, I want this on your head or on your hand. Okay, I want this on your body. And so they would take that, but they didn't want to mark their bodies, and so they would put it in little boxes and put scriptures inside it to remind them of what God had promised. So uh, tattoos in the ancient world, we talked a little bit about the, the Canaanite tribes and things like that. Uh, But tattoos were common when you talked about slaves and when you talked about prisoners. Many slaves in the ancient world would have a mark tattooed on their foreheads that showed that they were slaves. Many criminals, depending on which culture you're talking about, criminals were sometimes tattooed with their charges. And so uh, there are also some soldiers in the Roman army, particularly, that would have tattoos that indicated their allegiance to the Roman army. But usually the tattoo is associated with some kind of shame, okay? You're a slave, you're a criminal. It's not the tattoo itself that's shameful, but it's what the tattoo means. I have been tattooed because I have, you know, I'm a slave and no matter what happens to me, I'll always have that mark on me. I'll always be a slave. And uh, so there is a, this might sound familiar to you, the Greek word for tattoo is the word stigma, which is a word we still use in English. And in, in English, stigma still means something shameful, that people carry around sort of like a mark that, that has some shame associated with it. Uh, so that word, stigma, is found one time in the New Testament. Let's look at it real quick. It's in Galatians chapter six. Galatians six. I'm going to try not to go on and on about this because I found a lot of information that was really interesting to me about tattoos. But... It's not really helping answer the question except to give you some background. Uh, Galatians 6 and verse 17. Paul writes, Galatians 6, 17, from now on let no one cause me trouble for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. And that word marks is the word tattoos or brands, the stigma, the stigmata of Jesus. I wear his tattoo. Now he's contrasting that in the context to people who are boasting in their circumcision, which was a, a way of, Uh, changing the body, marking the body. And he says, my marks are Jesus' marks. Now, I do think, for one, Paul is saying, I've been wounded the way Jesus was wounded. Maybe not in the same places, but he's saying, I've suffered like Jesus has suffered. But there is also that idea when you wear the stigma or the mark of someone else as a slave, you're their slave, They're, they're your master. And I think that's why he says, let no one trouble me. Because if you mess with me, you got to mess with my master. Don't mess with me, because I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. That's interesting. So, get to the end of all of that. What should Christians think of tattoos? I don't believe that Christians are bound to keep the Jewish law about tattoos. Several reasons for that. First of all, it's part of a law that we don't keep to be saved. The law of Moses. We are not Jews, and we, we serve God through Jesus and not through Moses. For two, it's a law that is intended to prohibit things that we don't really deal with. The idea of tattoos as some kind of protection against dead spirits uh, or some kind of adoption of practices that are uh, idolatrous. Uh, but, But third, and this may be the most powerful one for me, I don't believe we keep that Leviticus 19 law because it also means that we cannot mar the edges of our beards or round off our hair or wear clothes with mixed fibers, okay? These are things that are part of their culture that are obviously important to God and important to them, but I think we we look at that and we would say, no, of course not. We're we're not going to have to worry. Let's go read Leviticus before we go to the barber, right? Make sure we get it all just right before you shave. Now read Leviticus again, okay? That's not the way that we're going to live. I have heard Brethren, I've been present when brethren tried to justify condemning tattoos based on Leviticus 19. And I think that is extremely unwise. Frankly, I'll just be frank, I think that they're looking for a text to condemn something that they just don't like. So, some people I have heard argue that tattoos are wrong because in some way they're a marring of the body. And they would usually appeal to a text like the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 6. But that seems really odd to me because tattooing is not dangerous, at least in its modern form. Okay? So it's not as if we're putting our body in danger to get a tattoo. So that doesn't really seem to me to be an issue. It's a lot like saying, well, we shouldn't get a bad haircut because our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's kind of like, really? Okay, I don't see how that goes with the other. Uh, that we shouldn't wear awkward-looking clothes. You know, if you wear awkward-looking clothes, well, your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. After all, well, I'm not sure what the two have to do with each other. I think we have to admit there's some subjectivity here, that some people are not going to like tattoos. You might think that tattoos are ugly or disfiguring, and that's certainly fair, but you might think the same thing about, you know, well, he's really muscled up, and I don't like the way that looks, or... He had plastic surgery on some part of his face. I don't like the way that looks. Oh, I don't like his hair like that. You know, the fact that I don't like something or I think it's ugly doesn't mean it's a sin. Those are two different things. Some people think tattoos are wrong because of a connection to a culture, that what the tattoo means is more important than the tattoo itself. And again, I have to say that's subjective, very subjective. And it is more than a little surface judgmental. You know, judging people to be associated with a certain thing by by literally their skin. I know that other people may assume certain things about me, but that's awfully hard to anticipate and it certainly doesn't make that wrong. So I want to just be real plain at this point. I don't believe that the Bible says anything about Christians not having tattoos. And I believe that very often efforts to condemn them are really just about enforcing my thoughts about what's appropriate on other people. And that's just not a good basis for anything. I don't get to decide what you do. Now, having said that, before you go off and get a million tattoos and say Jacob said it was okay, let me give you some cautions about this. First of all, what is the tattoo? What are you getting put on your body? It is one thing to have something graphic and profane on your body. It is another thing to have something maybe that reflects your faith or something positive, positive. and I think that needs to be a part of that discussion. How are people going to view this? So what happens often when you talk about tattoos is that tattoos are very often the product of a kind of short-lived, rebellious phase that people go through, and While there may not be anything wrong with having tattoos all over, it might be that some people don't say that. Like, maybe the person interviewing you for a job might disagree that they don't like that look. I know that we can't let other people dictate what we do and all that. I get all of that. I'm just saying Christians should be known for being people of foresight and wisdom. And it might be good to think about, well, what is this going to mean for other people's responses to me in the future? I would also say, kids, listen to your parents. Listen to your parents. I Christians obey their parents, and if they tell you it's a bad idea and they don't want you to do it, listen. And the, the last thing is, remember that it's permanent. It may seem really cool now, and it might not seem so cool in 40 years. Or what about if that girl that you're just so crazy about, you want to get her name tattooed on your arm, what, what about when you break up? Okay, How are you going to explain that to your wife someday? that she gets to see that name. You get what I'm saying? There are some things about this that cause a little bit of pause to me. All right, so that's all I've got to say about tattoos. Put your tomatoes down. All right. I have, do I really have eight minutes? Okay. All right, so the third question I want to tackle is what should a Christian consider concerning euphemisms? We're going to talk a little bit about euphemisms. Euphemisms are words that are substitutes for harder, more offensive words, okay? So sort of soft forms of cuss words. So I want to do a little research. Let's go back to Leviticus for just a minute. Leviticus 24. I need to talk a little bit about the Bible's teaching on words and how we use them. Leviticus 24. Major concern about the words in the Bible is blasphemy. Blasphemy. Blasphemy is speaking evil or speaking out of turn about God or about things that are holy, things that have to do with God. So Leviticus 24 is a good example of this. Leviticus 24, verse 10. Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelemeth the daughter of Dibri, of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed. Let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. So God's name is holy. You see, they're having a fight, and the guy basically exclaims the name of Jehovah. And that is entirely inappropriate. And so God, the the man is put to death. God wants his name to be respected. His name is different from other words. And so that word blasphemy characterizes that esteem for the name of God. And that's a word that's used very commonly in the New Testament. When you see the word slander in the New Testament in our modern English versions, that is the word blasphemy. Now, it could be I'm blaspheming another person, But it also could be I'm speaking evil about God. Either one is condemned in the New Testament. But there is a concern about the way we are talking about people and God in a way that's inappropriate. That happens in the New Testament as well. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, a couple of places here. And I'll get more to the question. Ephesians 4 and verse 29. Ephesians 4 and verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. That would be speech that causes others to be worse or corrupt them. We've got a lot going on on that screen, don't we? <clears throat> All right, so look at me. So the idea of corrupt communication makes others worse. It is rotten communication. We might say profane. Don't let anything come out of your mouth that is improper, offensive, that's going to hurt others. Look in chapter 5 of Ephesians in verse 3. Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Then verse 12, it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. Okay, so you get the idea there are some things that don't need to be talked about. So it seems to me, as I thought about this, it seems to me that in English, there are really three areas of offensive words. Some are about things that are holy and deserve respect. So if you think about what are considered cuss words in English a lot of them have to do with things that are fine in themselves or just taken out of context. I'm talking about the name of God or Jesus, I'm talking about the word hell or the word damn that are perfectly good religious words that express religious concepts. But when you take them out of those contexts and use them in an inappropriate way, it's offensive. And we find that offensive, and it's become a cuss word in our culture. So some things are holy and deserve respect. Some things are improper in certain ways, certain times to discuss. So I'm thinking here about bathroom things. I'm thinking here about sexual things. Okay, Those are things that are just inappropriate in certain ways. But, but euphemisms actually can help us in that because sometimes we need to refer to those things and not in a graphic or offensive way, but we can say it in a euphemistic way. In other words, we can use a word that's a little bit tamer to discuss something if it's necessary. A, a euphemism an example would be something like saying the word pass away instead of died. Okay? Pass away is an easier way, and we don't have to feel as harsh or as strong as the, the actual word. So there are some things that are holy and deserve respect. There are some things that are inappropriate, depending on the way you talk about it and when you talk about it. And then there are some things, the third category as I see it, some things are just intended to insult people. Okay, when we try to offend people and call them ugly names and say ugly things about them, a lot of those in English have to do with parentage. Some of them have to do with intelligence. This is a lot like when Jesus says, whoever says raka, empty head, stupid. Okay? Those are things that are intended to offend. And there are varying degrees of that, aren't there? Of how offensive something is based on how you know, crass the word is. So, you got all these areas in which you can use words in ways that are inappropriate. Usually the main problem, though, is we're just trying to offend people. I want to upset you. I want to call you a bad name. I want to express myself in a more vulgar way. But different things, and this is the difficulty when you talk about euphemisms, different things are offensive to different people. This is cultural, this is regional, and this is generational. Some people in certain parts of the country are offended by different things. Some people who come from different generations are offended by different things. And it's really hard to say, oh, well, here are the five things that offend everybody, Okay, and which ones we can and can't say. So let's get to the bottom line with this. I've got two minutes. My opinion is that the euphemism debate can get really silly really quickly. Because where we begin by saying we shouldn't say these cuss words... And then we say, well, I'm not sure we should say G, because G or G-whiz sounds a lot like Jesus. Or we shouldn't say dang, because it sounds a lot like... I I think pretty quickly you can get to where there are almost no words that are not somehow connected tangentially to other more offensive words. There is no list in the Bible of words we can't and cannot say. So there will always be some gray area with this. The question is not, is there a gray area? The question is, what do we do with gray areas? And so I wanna give you what I believe are good guidelines for this. First is just don't be offensive. That's Ephesians 4, 29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but let it give grace to those who hear you. I don't want people to leave a conversation with me saying, man, I cannot believe he said that. I don't want people to leave a conversation with me and saying, but that Jacob, he just doesn't know how to control his mouth. I want to give grace to the hearers. So it's important to be aware of people's responses. You may offend people and not realize that that word would offend them. Watch people and watch their responses. And if they do this, then you know you've hit the mark. You've offended them, okay? Just sometimes by our word choice. I've noticed this in preaching. There are words that I just will not use when I'm preaching. They are inappropriate. They do not belong there. And I can tell when in times past I have used words that I probably should have known better than to use, I can see it in people's faces. Be aware and don't be offensive because it then will discount other things you say. And I wanna say this, especially as I look at us as a group. As a group, we have a lot of generations and I want us to be sensitive to generational differences. I have been alive long enough to see words that when I was a child were considered offensive now are accepted widely. But they're not accepted by the older generation. They still remember when that was offensive. So if you young people use those words in the presence of an older person, they're going to be offended. And then it goes the other way too. Sometimes older people use words that have gone long out of style and are much stronger or harsher. And so they offend the younger generation be aware of that. Be aware of how other people view what you're saying. So I don't get to tell you what words to use or not to use. I'm not your boss. I don't get to go around saying, no, that's a euphemism. It means this. That's not my job. But it's very different. If you were to approach me and say, Jacob, you use this word. It bothers me. Please don't use it again. I'm going to approach that very differently than if you say, this is wrong because of this and this and this. So the other thing, let me just say this one thing. I know I'm, I'm a little bit over. I also want to say that the use of God's name matters. God's name. Not only is that a biblical priority, like we've read, be careful how you talk about God, but it is a cultural issue, considering the number of cuss words and exclamations we have that have God's name in them. I want to say that is offensive to almost all Christians, And I cannot be certain about this, but I suspect it's very concerning to God. Respect for God's name matters. And we need to be a people that have respect for those things. All right, thank you so much for your attention. We'll be dismissed for our classes.